Good morning, y'all. <laughs> if you got your Bibles, go to the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 34. Exodus chapter 34. We'll start at verse 5. Let us pray. Father God, in the name of Jesus, God, settle our hearts, God. Let us hear, God, to truly hear and to believe what it is that you've spoken and revealed, Father God. Let us put our trust in you and you alone, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Exodus chapter 34, and we're continuing from where we were last week in talking about the concept and the effects of sin and what it is that sin has done to this image of God, to this great crown of glory that God has given us called humanity. And as we turn, we're going to look more specifically at sin itself and try to understand some of what it is and probably going to end up into some specific sins, even though I usually try to avoid that, but I think that's what we're going to end up in. Maybe not today, but as the weeks go on. But here in the book of Exodus, we're going back to where we begin and try to tie all this in. In Exodus 34, this is God revealing himself unto Moses. And I'm picking up in verse 5. It says, And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful, gracious, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and fourth generation. This is God's declaration of himself and all of his attributes and all of his goodness. But in here, he, he reveals himself as being a forgiver, a forgiving God. But in his declaration of his forgiving, he points out three different things that he forgives. He says he forgives iniquity, transgression. And sin. Iniquity, transgression, and sin. And so what we're going to start is just speak about those few things just a little bit. And God just helped me out a little bit. So I'm going to cheat y'all by helping y'all and helping myself. So we're just going to take the definitions of these terms. Because I got a long sheet, a whole lot of notes. I had to work third shift, so I had a full eight hours <laughs> to do nothing else but increase my notes, which was a bad thing. <laughs> but we're just going to take these terms. So these are the most, three of the most common terms used to define sin. And if you look at your Bible and you get deep and you do studies and word studies in the Bible, you'll see, especially in the Hebrew, there's like 20 different words that they use to describe sin. And all we have is sin, transgression, iniquity, wickedness, evil, unrighteousness. We got five to translate like 20 different words. And in the New Testament, it's about five or six different words. We only use like three words to translate those words. So it's a broad meaning when we when we interact with the Bible, when we understand sin. And we're just going to take these three right here and, and try to get a grasp of what it is that it is that we struggle with 
so that we can see the fullness of what it is that Christ has delivered us from. So when he said he forgiven iniquity. Now that word iniquity here in this text. One of the best definitions of that term iniquity is perverseness. Some people you would say just badness. It's a corruption. And it's the idea, uh, you get the idea when you track the word through that sin or iniquity in itself is a perversion or a corruption of something that is good. That's what the word means, to pervert, to change, to twist. In some places the word is translated as crooked. So when he say he forgive iniquity, the idea that he's pointing to is there's something about this thing that is crooked, that is perverse, that has, that is a twisting. And if we understand sin, we gotta understand that that is what sin is. And we're gonna paint that picture more broad as we get into details. But just to give an example, I use this one quite often. Let's take when we come to something like sex. That's the easiest one. That's the most prevalent thing in our culture. That it is something that God designed. God instituted it. God made it way back in Genesis. And it is a good thing that God created. But God defines certain expressions of it as sin. Why? It's those expressions that he defined as sin is the things that is a twisting or distorting of what it is that he originally created. He created sex between a man and a woman in a marriage union to be enjoyed for life by them. And anything other than that, other than that is a perversion of what it is that God has made. You understand what I'm saying? And that's an expression of our iniquity. Cause when we be honest with ourselves, there's a compulsion within us to express and to partake of those things apart from the way that God designed it. And that's the iniquity that God is, he's willing to forgive. It's that perverted state, that perverted character that, that allow us to go and enjoy the things of God in a way and a means that God did not design them to be enjoyed. And, and, and part of what messes us up, and especially as people grow up and get older and try to be Christian, especially ones that are raised in the church, and you have this, this switch that has to take place because they've been beat down all their life and, and they've been told and abused and trained that sex is bad, it's bad, it's bad, it's bad. You stay away from it. You run far away from it. We don't talk about it. It's just a bad thing. Then all of a sudden they get married and you be like, don't defraud one another. Y'all got to have it. And you be like, how? <laughs> And some, especially ladies, struggle with the, with the transition because it's like, it's been bad, 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 bad. And it is because we don't truly understand sin. Because we have defined certain acts as sin. And we're trying to catalog all these various acts that we do and keep everything in this neat drawer. But it's not necessarily the acts themselves because most of what we do that is sin is not that the act in and of itself is sin. It's the way that we use it. Talking is good. But cussing folks out. <laughs> that's a perversion of the purpose of language. It is to inform, to help, 
to build up, to communicate with God, not to tear down, destroy, and humiliate people. So that that's an expression of the iniquity that we have. So sin, part of what God forgives is an iniquity. It's a perversion. It's a twisting. It's a crookedness that exists inside mankind that allow us to distort the things that God has given us. Y'all understanding what I'm saying? I always like to use the picture of a cell phone. Cell phone, we understand it. It got a, a concrete design, a concrete purpose, especially in our day and age, is highly valued. Now, if I take the brand new iPhone, whatever the one it is, what we had, 12, 13 or something like that, <laughs> just keep making, making up a new one every other month. If I take it and slide it under that crook table in the kitchen, because it's the perfect width to take the crook out the table. It's a good function. I'm getting some good use out of it. But most of you will look at me like a fool. Like, why would you take a $1,000 phone and use it to prop up a table? And I'd be like, man, it was the most perfect thing I had in this house. It, it, it fit the gap exactly. And you will look at me it's like still, but you could stuff some paper, some tissue, anything up on it, or cut a piece of wood, anything other than a $1,000 phone. Why would you feel that way? Because that ain't what it made for and then by changing or perverting the use of it, you are destroying it. Y'all getting what I'm saying? And that's an expression of sin. So one of the things that we struggle with is not just acts in and of themselves, but there's a pervertedness that exists within us. There's a twisting, there's a turning that is an expression of something that God did not create. Are we using it in a manner that is inconsistent with his purpose? That's iniquity. The other word he said he forgives is transgression. It says a whole bunch of words that translated as transgression. But the most basic or the most predominant one is to rebel, to go away from, or to go beyond. Rebel, to go away from, or to go beyond. That's transgression. That's why John says that sin is the transgression of the law. That's when you go away from it and you disobey it, when you rebel against it. That's transgression. So sin is a perversion. It's a rebellion. And sometimes it's just going too far. That you take the good thing, you're utilizing it, and you're taking it beyond what it is that God has designed it to be. And that was the sin of the Pharisees. They took the law, they took the commandments of God, and they just went way too far with them. And they began to put burdens on people that God did not put on them. And they begin to, to raise a standard that God himself did not raise. Because they go beyond the law. And another one is to go away from. You, you, you just swerve. That's another definition of transgress, to swerve. You head down the right track, you on the right path, and you somehow you just veered off course. That's sin. And that has the connotation of the understanding that there is a law, that there is a right way. You're understanding what I'm saying. So that perverted means there's a correct purpose. There's a direct intent. This transgression is there is a law. There is a right standard. And you have gone beyond it. You didn't go all the way to it. Or you have rebelled against it. That's why um, Jesus, uh, God, when he was speaking to Saul, he said rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. 
Because there's a going beyond and there's a, a putting up your hands and saying, I ain't with this. I'm going to do my own thing, my own way. All of these are expressions of sin. That's why and you read your Old Testament law. Rebellion could get you stoned. It was capital punishment. We don't got that nowhere close to that today. And all these folks who want to be deep, some of they want to be Torah observant. I'll be waiting on them to obey that command. Like that boy, I told him wash the dishes. He ain't wash it. Let go. Take him outside. <laughs> Let's stone him. You know, don't nobody keep that command. Because <clears throat> rebellion in itself is an expression of defiance against God. And when we disobey God blatantly, openly, what we're doing is we're elevating ourselves to the status of God. You, you, God said, this is what you're supposed to do. You say, no, this is what I'm supposed to do. So you're making a law unto yourself would put you in the same sin as Lucifer. Because his desire was to be like the most high. So anytime you know and understand the right things that God has expressed and you openly disobey those things, you openly rebel against those things, you're showing that there's a law unto yourself and you're elevating yourself to the position of God. So we got this iniquity, which is a perversion. We got this transgression, which is a swerving, a missing the mark, a rebellion, a going against the law of God. And we got this last one. And we're going to go to my main point. Well, it talks about straight sin. And the best definition of sin we got, go, let's look at it. A famous scripture. Let's give y'all Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. It says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now that word sin there literally means to fall short or to miss the mark. It's the same, they had the same definition in the Old Testament. Word that means to, to aim at a goal and to not hit it. And the picture is, is that there's a standard that we're marked by or we're judged by. And sin is a failure to meet up with that standard. And I like this scripture because it gives us the full. It says, all have sinned and fallen short. So it uses the long form of the, of the basic definition. To sin means to miss the mark. Falling short means to not hit it. You was aiming at it, but you didn't meet up to it. And it shows us what the mark is of the glory of God. And if we wrap all this together, we get the picture that we were created in the image of God. We were made to be like God, an expression of who he is. We were made to be temples or tabernacles of the presence of God. That is our design and that is our purpose. And sin is up, is us not living up to that. That's why the Bible gives us commands like you must be perfect like your father in heaven is perfect. That <clears throat> you must be holy even as he is holy. Because the standard that we're compared to is God himself. And any time we don't meet up to that, that's sin. It's us falling short of our purpose and our destiny. You're not getting there. So when he said all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, it's showing us that everybody has been in a state to where you don't match up to how you, what you were created to be. I take my same cell phone example. If I got one that the home button don't work on, it's still a cell phone. 
It just ain't matching up. And it get judged and deemed as being no good. It's just one button don't work. And with all these new ones, ain't but like two buttons on. <laughs> so it's 50% good. <laughs> then if you add the touch screen, man, it's like 90-some percent good. Because all that other stuff works. But you just can't go back to home once you open up something. And we'll deem that to be unfit, something to be sent back to the store, not good, because it falls short of the thing in which it was designed for. It sins. It missed the mark. And that's the definition of sin that is most commonly used throughout both Old and New Testament. To miss the mark, to fall short, to have a goal and not make it. Because that paints the picture of what it is that has taken place within us. We have destiny. That's to be like God. And anytime we show or display ourselves to be any other thing than that, we sin. We fall short. And if we can get this in our mind, this will help us a whole, whole lot. Because it recalibrates our focus. And it gets us out of the standpoint of trying to create a list. Of all the activities that I can and cannot do. And we run this long list of things that we can't do. And we try to match ourselves up to. How do we, how are we fulfilling the list? How far down on the list if I made it? Like I'm a 60%, 70%, then I learned something new, godly. Now I gotta add another one onto my list. And it bogs us down and it takes our mind away from God. But if we get the full picture of that is greater than the list, it's about purpose and destiny. It's about identity. It's about me imaging. So am I reflecting the nature and character of God in my expressions? I don't care if it's on a list or not. My doing this, does this show and display the glory that I was created in? Does it show and display the nature of the character of the one of whom I'm mimicking? And if I can't say it, do that, then it's sin. I don't care how minute it is. I don't care how, how mundane it may be because that's what I'm created for. Y'all understanding what I'm saying? So the true sin is to miss the mark, to swerve, to fall short of the thing that we were created for. We were created for glory, destiny. That's our design. And I'm going to have to tell y'all, y'all non-athletic people, I, I grew up watching basketball. And I always used basketball. When I was young, there was this guy who came on the scene in the 90s. The biggest thing at this time, everybody should know because he's still pretty big, Michael Jordan. Everybody wanted to be like Mike. You had folks copying him. Mike walked, hanging with their tongues out the mouth. Just all type of foolishness. Everybody wanted to be like Mike. Even had young brothers with full head of hair, shaving their head. Everybody wanted to be like Mike. And there was this guy... See, people who was into sports back in the 90s remember him. This is the dude named Harold Miner. Came on the scene. Got drafted by the Miami Heat. He was a little bit shorter than Mike. But he had the little muscular build. Bald head. He can jump and dunk. So everybody said that Baby Jordan. That was his nickname. Killed that brother. Just absolutely destroyed his career. Because... He did not have the talent that Michael Jordan had. But he came into the league out of nowhere with the name Baby Jordan and was placed on a pedestal for a sorry team to be the savior and the heir apparent to Michael Jordan. 
He did win the dunk contest. Which made it worse. <laughs> because that boosted them, <laughs> them, them expectations up a whole lot farther. Now, if you actually watched the dude, he could have been a very decent role player. And could have been around in the league for quite a bit of time. But the fact that he ended up on the bench and ended up traded, most people forgot that he was in the league before he got out of there. Like you forgot all about that he existed. It's because he had a standard and an expectation that he didn't come nowhere close to. And that standard and that expectation brought just shame upon every other thing that he did. Because like, nah, man, this dude ain't no joy. He can't even start for the Miami Heat. I'm talking about, <laughs> so he, he, he ain't no Mike. He on the heat and running cycling is still the best player. <laughs> it's like, no. And that destroyed this guy's career. Because the expectations was far too much for him to live up to. And I truly believe if he would have came in just as a no-name college player, he would have had a pretty decent career. He would have made a whole lot of checks. He didn't get a chance to make a whole lot of checks. He made a couple of them. And he got bounced. It's because expectations, he didn't match up. But the amazing thing I always think about is that's like the pinnacle for a basketball player. If you can come in and they can say, this is the next Jordan. Nowadays, this is the next LeBron. It puts some some stock on you. You're like, oh, everybody want to check you out. Like the little young boy now, the number one draft pick, Zion Williams. I don't watch high school basketball. But everybody was talking, man, this dude, he's he going to be better than LeBron. And it, I got to admit, it made me look. I like, look at the video. I said, who is this dude? Because the hype creates an expectation. But the hype also amplifies disappointment. But if that's something to be aspired to, to be like Mike, to be like LeBron, like that's cool. God has raised our expectations even beyond that. When we're born again and brought into the kingdom of God, he said, this dude here is the next Jesus. Like that deep. I'm saying, man, when you look at this lady, you just see a small little bit of lady Rush around the town crazy with all her artistic stuff, busting them kids in and out the van. But when I look at her, I see the next Jesus. That's the female Jesus. <laughs> and we look at ourselves like, no, no, it can't be me. Like, that's prideful. That's uh, just too much. <laughs> but that's what God says. He refers to Christ as the firstborn among many brethren. Like, he's the one that started this thing off, and there's going to be a whole lot of them that come out behind him just like him. We got a whole team of mics. That's the standard that we've been set up to, and that's the thing that we should aspire to, not the list, because you can get pretty close on the list and still not be what God created you to be, because you were created to be like Christ. Y'all, y'all understanding what I'm saying? And that's the true definition of sin, to fall short, to miss the mark, to not live up to the destiny that God has placed within us. 
But we have this destiny. We have this hope. God has given it to us and he's calling us unto it. And like I told you many times before, we got the whole thing set up. God has intertwined his glory with you being like him. And he ain't going to let his name be shamed. You're going to win. All you got to do is trust him. You're going to be like Christ. Whatever Christ would look like being a mama driving an odyssey. Whatever you imagine Jesus like doing like that, that's what you're going to be. Because that's what God has called you to. So when we think about the fact that God will keep us from sin, we need to add to the fact that God will keep me from falling short of my destiny. Because to miss the mark is to sin. And it's not just doing the wrong acts. It's not just blurting out in anger. It's me not being what God created me to be. So God promised to keep me from that. So I'm going to fulfill destiny. I'm going to walk like Jesus. I'm going to be the image and glory of God here on this planet, right here in the city of Montgomery, a full expression. Not because I'm great, but because God is. Not because I can sit down and figure it all out. Because God has planned and he has destined for me to be that. Are y'all understanding what I'm saying? So this sin is a perversion. It's a twisting. It's a missing, a rebellion. And it's a failure to be what God created you to be. That is sin. But as we look deeper into the Bible, we run into a problem. Go, we in Romans. Go to Romans chapter 5. I'll look at a couple of them. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. We read this a couple of times. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. It said, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. So as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. And the thing I want to point out that always sticks in my mind when I read this, it said sin entered into the world. And it puts sin as a noun, as like it's something concrete. So sin came. Adam brought it. It didn't say as by one man sinning entered into the world and death through sinning because all was committing sin. It says sin. It's, it's this concrete thing that entered in. Go to Genesis. Go back to the beginning and, and watch this picture. In one of the most hotly debated chapters of the Bible. Genesis chapter 4. Chapter 4, we start at verse 5. It said, but unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect. Talking about God. And Cain was very wroth and his countenance fell. And the Lord said unto Cain, why art thou wroth? And why is thy countenance fallen? If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door, and unto thee shall be its desires, and thou shalt rule over him. This is Cain. After he brought his offering to God, and God was disappointed in his offering. said his offering was rejected. Cain got mad, and he got upset. He got mad and sad all at the same time. He said he was very wroth and his countenance was falling. And his expression on his face, he was down. You can see it in his face. Brother was sad and mad. And God show up like, what you mad for, bro? <laughs> what, you, what, you, what you mad for? That's the question that God asked him. 
But then he makes this crazy statement in verse 4. Say, if thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? Like if you do right, if you do that which is good, if you do that which is pleasant, won't you be accepted? Like I ain't no cheating, I ain't no respect to persons in this thing. I ain't just pick Abel because he able. If you do right, you will be accepted as well. But if thou doest not well, if you don't do good, it says sin lieth at the door and its desire is unto thee. And it's painting this picture of that sin as something animate that is right outside of the, the door of Cain. That is some waiting to get him. Y- y'all see the picture there. That sin is something that's, that's waiting to, to take hold of Cain if you don't do well. And that's this idea that is dominant throughout the scripture that there's this force, there's this power, there's this animate thing, this principle of life called sin. And it is something that is contrary to us and it is something that seeks to dominate us. But it's a principle and a life force even greater than the act. So this perversion, this corruption, this missing of the mark is something that wants to take hold. It's okay and if you don't do well, sin gonna get you. Go to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. I think it's verse 31 I want. Yeah, John chapter 8, verse 31. Then said Jesus to those which believed on him, If you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, we be Abraham's seed and were never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou you shall be made free? Jesus answered them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whosoever committed sin is the servant of sin. And the servant abided not in the house forever, but the son abided forever. And this is the picture. Jesus continuing down the same line. Whoever commits sin is a servant of sin. So Jesus got the same idea that there's this thing called sin. Who has the ability to dominate. So sin is a principle in and of itself. It's an animate entity. Not just an act or a deed. It's a force that we struggle against. And the things we're going to point out a couple of things about them. The first one is here. That sin has power. It's a principle unto the self. And this principle being sin, it has power. Jesus said those who commit sin is a slave to it. So you participating with sin puts you under the domination of sin. You you see the picture? That there's this force called sin. It has a desire towards us. If we do evil, we come under its power. It dominates you. It controls you. This life force called sin. Let's look at a couple. Go to Romans chapter 7. Matter of fact, go to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. Verse 15. It said, what shall we, what then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? God forbid. Know you not that to whom you yield yourself servants to obey, his servants you are to whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or obedience unto righteousness. This is Paul picking up on the same point. If you actually read through 6 and 7, he, he, this thing runs quite strong. Is that there's this power of sin. He says, if you yield yourself to it, 
There you become the servant of it. And it's the picture of sin has the power to dominate you. And we see this in the cycle that it displays in our lives. That once you start lying, it becomes easier to do what? Lie. It just take over. Once you open yourself up to something, that something begins to take over you. And it begins in the small things. It begins in the minute things to where we allow ourselves to be taken captive by this principle we call sin. And it begins to dominate our hearts and dominate our actions. And that's why we see ourselves. And if we be honest, we end up where Paul was in Romans chapter 7 where he's saying, who's going to deliver me from this body of death? Because it had a control, it had a power over him that he in and of itself could not overcome. It's like church folks that messed us up because they done got deep and, and, and told us about all this stuff called our spiritual strongholds. That's true. And they told us about all, all these, these, these bonds and these ties and soul ties that we get ourselves into. All that stuff is true. But the reality of it, those are expressions of submitting and yielding yourself to sin, period. It ain't some deep thing that you got to be spooky or that you keep playing with it and you keep playing with it and you keep playing with it and one day this boogeyman called strong soul ties going to get you. No. Once you step into it, this boogeyman called sin has got you. And you are a captive at that moment. The proverb talking about how the wicked is ensnared or enholding by their sin is wrapped in the cords of iniquity. That's a picture of the wicked. They cannot be free. They cannot be delivered. They cannot escape the power of it. And no matter how hard they try, it has a power. It has a hold on them. And that's what we see expressed throughout our culture today. People who can't get free. And sometimes you have people who come to you, they tell you, I want to be free. I want to change and I try my best. And, and, and this be did. I, I deal with it at work. Sometimes when I get a chance to sit down with a young man, he, he caught up. Most time I don't get a chance to just really sit down with him until they get suicidal and want to kill himself. That's a whole nother thing. But sometimes when you be in that, I, I was talking to this one guy. He'd been locked up in this cycle since he's 12, just in and out of jail. 16 years old, just caught up in this cycle. And he don't see a way to escape. And you tell him, I, I, want, I know I'm doing wrong, man. I want to stop. And my granny, she be feeling real bad when every time I get locked up, I hate for them to come see me like this, but I can't stop. And no matter how hard I try, no matter how much I tell myself this the last time, it seems like it something just overtakes me. And it's because he's caught up in the bond of iniquity, even to the point where this one guy is. He's a, he's a cutter. He just, he cuts all up and down his arm when he get mad, when he get frustrated, or in times where tough stuff get out of hand. He, he cuts. And the amazing thing about this cutter, he's very ashamed of it. Like, it, it's a hundred and some degrees now, but he wears long sleeves. He refused to get a long, short sleeve t-shirt because he don't want nobody to see his arms. So he walking around with shorts and a long sleeve shirt in 110 degree weather sometime because he refused to let somebody see his arms. 
because he's ashamed of the scars that he got. But it's, it's just through him cutting. And it got to the point where one day his grandma came to visit him. And during visitation, she somehow caught a glimpse of his wrist. And she didn't know that he was a cutter. And so she started to cry and plead with him and baby, please. Everything okay was going on. And he said that so hurt him to his soul. And he felt so bad to see his grandma like that, to see her feeling so bad about what he was going through and by him being locked up and especially the fact that he was a cutter. But that bonding and that bondage was so strong on him. How did he express it? How did he show his grief? He went back to his room, found a piece of metal and cut himself. And I'm sitting there talking to him, trying to get him to realize that the thing you ashamed of, you do. Your goal is to not have your grandma upset with you. You don't want her to be shamed of you. You want to make them proud. So the way you get mad that you're not making them proud is to do the thing that makes her sad. And it took a minute for it to register in his mind that that didn't make no sense. Because his mind was bound by this addiction to this cutting and it's something that had a stronghold over him. And it's easy for us to understand that in those things like that. When we see the little man walking up and down the street just, just willing to do anything for $5 just so he can get a vial of crack, we understand that. He has an addiction. He's strung out. This has a hold on him. But when we see that our tongue can't be loose from lying and we lie before we even realize that we said anything, we don't see the same connection. When we realize the fact that we are willing to compromise and we're willing to lower our standards just for some woman or somebody of the opposite sex to smile at me and make me feel good because there's something deep inside of me that's driving me to want to have the affirmation of these opposite people and I just can't see that this is the same expression that that dude running around there willing to cut your whole grass, clean out your roof and clean out your gutter for five dollars. Because something has a hold on him. And he's willing to do the unreasonable to get alleviation from the thing that desire that is compelling him that has a stronghold on him. And it's worked the same way in our lives, but we don't see it the same. We don't realize that our acts of sin is acts of bondage. And that while it does not make sense when the preacher man tells us that we can be a Christian and be a sinner because a sinner is one who's in bondage, but those who are in Christ have been set free. So you can't be a free man and a bound man at the same time. And nothing about Christ that breaks the bonds of sin so that you can be bound in it, but you just don't see it. God ain't delusional. That ain't how he works. He's not going to say, all right, I'm finna free Cabronica. Just in my mind. <laughs> so Cabronica, you feel like you free. You sing songs that you free, but for the rest of your life, you're going to be bound to this thing called sin that I died to free you from. Okay, that's our deal. And if you don't believe that I set you free from the thing you still bound by, I'm going to punish you forever in hell because you didn't believe that you were free from the thing that you were bound by. Like, that don't make no sense. <laughs> but that's the gospel that we preach. That Christ came to set us free and those who are in the Son are free indeed, but you're just going to be bound for the rest of your life. And you're going to have this time where you're in and out of handcuffs. 
You like a good prison. You go jail for a little bit and you get out. And you be on parole and you're almost about to get off, but then they catch you with a joint in your car. So you go back to jail for a little bit. <laughs> then you get out. And you're almost about to get off, but then if somebody starts shooting out of gear, really, you ain't have nothing to do with it, but you weren't supposed to be out there, so you go back to jail again. <laughs> and you just can't ever be free. And no matter how much you try to do right, you won't ever be free because you just stuck, and that's the cycle. And the one who claimed to set you free can't set you free. That ain't true. Seeing this bondage, and we need to recognize it as bondage. So when we have them thoughts swerving around in our head, the decision is, do I want to be bound or do I want to be free? Do I want to be under the control of God or do I want to be under the control of the enemy? Them are the only choices that we have because sin leads to bondage. There's a power to sin. But the amazing thing is that makes it a whole lot worse. Hebrews chapter 12. There's a power to sin, but if it just was a power, it would be a whole lot easier. Hebrews chapter 12, verse. No, it's chapter 11 that I want. Chapter 11. Chapter 11, verse 24. We're talking about Moses. It's a famous verse. We're going to tie it in. It said, by faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. It's talking about Moses and the choice that he made by faith. So Moses gave up his birthright and all the, the, the bounty that came with being Pharaoh's daughter. So he refused to be called Pharaoh's daughter and would rather su suffer affliction with the children of God than enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. That's deep. And it get doubly deep with me because the pleasures of sin is referring to is Moses being identified with Pharaoh in Pharaoh's house as opposed to being identified with the children of God. Like, Moses had nothing to do with that. God the one who sent him up the river. God the one who allowed him to be taken in by Pharaoh's daughter. Like, there was God's whole plan. So what would be wrong with Moses just chilling in the palace? You know what I'm saying? He just go down there every now and then and dap his homeboys up. And be like, what's up, dog? What you, what you got going on, man? I'm finna go down to Cairo for a little bit. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? To the summer house. <laughs> what y'all got going on? Oh, y'all still making them bricks, huh? <laughs> like, what would have been bad about that? Ain't, nothing, ain't no sin in being rich. <laughs> but... It, right of the Hebrews point out this thing he said there was a pleasure in it and it was come to the thing that we identified earlier that Moses as a child of God as the liberator of the people of God once he got wind of his true identity it would have been a front for him to rebel against the things that who he was it would have been a front to him to reject his people even with their condition he was willing to give up the pleasure and take affliction instead just so he can be acquainted with his people. That's pretty deep right there. But the thing we want to point out with is it refers to the pleasures of sin. So there's some delight in it. Go to Titus chapter 3. 
Titus chapter 3. We'll start at verse 1. Titus chapter 3 verse 1 says, Put them in mind to be subjection into principalities and powers, to obey magistrates, to be ready to every good work, to speak evil on no man, to be no brawlers but gentle, showing all meekness unto all men. For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, deserving divers lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But after that, the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared. But look at Paul's description, especially in verse 3, of what we used to be. That we were foolish, disobedient, deceived, deserving, serving divers lusts and pleasures. And the picture that he's painting is that us in our sinful state, when we out there sinning, when we out there expressing the corruption of our nature, there's delight in it. There's pleasure in it. And just, if we think about it, one of the most deceitful things on this planet is ease and pleasure. Ease and pleasure is one of the biggest enemies that we have as a people. Because pleasure has the ability to distort our mind that the thing that I'm participating in is good. Because we have the idea that if you're doing right, everything going to be right. If you're doing wrong, everything going to go wrong. So you have a whole nation of people who believe that the state that they're in is okay because I'm okay. I ain't got no cancer. I'm in college. I got a car. I got a job. So life is good. God cannot be displeased with me because he's blessing me. And that's the deception of sin. Because there is pleasure in the sin. The Bible talks about over and over over those who delight to do wickedness. There's some fun in it. There's some joy that we get out of it. And the reason we get joy out of it is because our hearts have been perverted. So our heart can take delight into the thing that God is displeased with. So there's power to sin and there's pleasure to sin. It feels good to you. Even something as simple as a lie. There, there's some delight in that. When you tell that quick, when you get yourself out of trouble, you, you, you feel a little relieved. Because there's some heartache and there's some pressure that's going on, especially when you think you're about to get in trouble by something. And you, man, golly, I messed up. Boss, I know he's going to ask me for me about this paper or whatever it is I'm supposed to do. And you just start concocting a whole bunch of little stories to make what you didn't do seem like you did do it, but you had a good excuse while you ain't always complete. You lying. You say, I was playing solitaire and I forgot all about it. <laughs> but you can't say that. <laughs> you just can't say that. <laughs> so you have to make up a whole story about how you had a whole lot going on and then somebody came in, them folks came in your office at 7 30 that morning. <laughs> so I had to kind of talk to this person. They had a problem with them and that took you two minutes. <laughs> but all that started to run through your mind about why you didn't get this thing done and when you get it and they believe it they be like okay just have it to me tomorrow you feel good but you lying and you sinning and you are showing the manifestation of the corruption that is inside of you and you take delight in it 
what shows you there's a corruption inside of you. Because the Bible says over and over, the fear of God is to hate evil. Those who love God depart from iniquity. First Corinthians chapter 13, talking about that love does not rejoice in iniquity. That it, it don't take pleasure. It don't take delight in the evil. This is love, but we take delight in it because something is wrong and corrupted in our hearts. But that's also a part of the package of the deceitfulness of sin. It draws us in and it causes a struggle within us because all the time the Bible saying this, this, and this, and this. Then when I see certain people who doing the things that the Bible say not to do, they look happy. Let's be honest, especially like I say, in our social world it's even worse. Because you, you stroll on your twit face and you get your updates and you got all that stuff going on and what you see is a whole bunch of sinful people looking good, looking happy. Little brother turned up. Golly. Man, they were getting it in. Oh, Lord. And, and, and it just go on and on and on. You're like, man, that brother. Man, I know dude selling dope. But he got it. He banging. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Dude on the come up. Like, Golly. I still... Taping my glove department clothes. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I can't even put a new set of tires on my car. I got to go down there to Tony there a couple months because the thing old and they keep dying and blowing out on me. But I can't afford more than that $25, $35 tie. <laughs> That's all I got to get. But bro right here, he got them 28s on them thing, low profile. Man, they ain't doing something right. And it creates a longing within you. That's another one of the Old Testament words that, that's translated as sin. I think it's translated as iniquity. It's a void, a chasm, a desire, a lusting. It creates that within you because our eyes see things that look like what it's supposed to be. We're supposed to be blessed. We're supposed to be the people of God. We're supposed to be the head and not the tail, above only and not beneath. But everybody is elevated. And I even flash back in my mind. I went to school with a uh, little bit of dude. Little dude, I ain't never paying no attention because we traveled in different circles. You know what I'm saying? By this time, uh, I was still in Cedar Park, but he was from Washington Park. You know what I'm saying? So he used to be skipping going back to Washington Park to sell dope or do whatever he was doing. I used to be skipping just waiting in school to uh, make it to band practice. Different paths. But after I graduated some years later, I came across dudes. Folks, I kept hearing these folks talking about this young, this one, this one guy. Like, man, he, he the king of the west side and so on and so forth. I'm like, who is this dude? I never heard of a dude. Then I see a picture of him. That little dude? Like, I remember that little dude. He used to sit up under the little pathway down there. I know him. Then I'm starting to hear the stories of him. Like, what? Him? But then I started to pay attention. Hey, dude, he year two younger than me. You know what I'm saying? He out doing his thing in the elevator to the status of the king of the west side. I'm out doing my thing and still got to walk halfway across the country <laughs> just to try to make it to school. <laughs> he came from a hood. I came from another hood. When I finally get a car, it was an old 90-something Honda Accord <laughs> that we barely holding on to. 
that you just ride around in that thing praying. I'm talking about, I remember deep time praying riding that thing. Cause you got absolutely no money to put gas in. He <laughs> said, praying that the Lord gets you where you're trying to go. And you shout up a storm when you open up that glove box and you find two dollars in there, man. You run up in that gas station, hey man, let me get two dollars on pump. <laughs> Give me two on pump three, girl. <laughs> they gonna get me to tomorrow right now. Like this dude ride around on big boxes, bubbles, and dunks, doing it. Now hold on, man. This ain't what it's supposed to be. Cause I listened to the preacher man. The one that would run around on, on the money. And I, I was deep into it. And they told me what it was supposed to be like. That I was supposed to be able to say the magical prayer, make the magical confession, and God was going to make me rich. So I'm going to this church Sunday, Wednesday, sometimes two, three times on Sunday. Over and over again. Friday nights doing this thing. And I'm still broken in the mud. Bro, hanging out on the block and balling. <laughs> like, hold up, God, this thing ain't right. Cause he getting all the blessing and he ain't doing nothing you asked him to do. I'm doing everything he preacher telling me to do and I ain't getting no blessing. You know what I'm saying? I'm running, hollering, money, 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 coming now. <laughs> I'm saying I'm making my confession. Walk around the mailbox seven times, lay your hand on it, and it's gonna be rebates and returns, checks in the mail. <laughs> so I'm saying doing that stuff, walking, struggling. I see I couldn't make it all the way real because I was walking. So sometimes, boy, you you walk by Daniel Motor Car, <laughs> you confess that <laughs> that that thing gonna be yours in the name of Jesus. I have no idea how it's going to get there, but it's going to come. Tell deep caught up in all this deception and confusion. So deep where I had books of Cadillacs all over me. I'm telling you, reading, studying about this thing. Real heavy. Just got, just got the brochures already, all the way through that, man. When that, uh, about that, that 2001 Cadillac DTS came out. Had the thing where you can see up the road with the night vision camera on that thing. I knew I was going to have that car. Why? Because the preacher man told me all I got to do is say some stains and some magical words and I was going to get it. He lied, y'all. <laughs> I still ain't got that call. <laughs> the magical words weren't so magical. But, bruh, he could have got the car. And so, as you see this dichotomy, the switch between me struggling, him balling, and we ain't have no social stuff. I know it's at work for y'all. Because all I had to do was just hear through the streets. Now you can actually just look at it and see it. Just getting it in. You know what I'm saying? You out here trying to be faithful. And you trying to serve the Lord. And you trying to, you out here talking and making your confession. Jesus is my husband. Sister out there clubbing and getting it up. Turning up every other weekend. Getting drunk, balling. And now she flashing the ring. On, on the face twit that she about to get married. Now, hold up. How she get a husband before I do? That ain't right. And that creates a chasm. That creates a desire in you. It's because it's that longing for pleasure that has been perverted. Because there is pleasure in sin. 
And that's the deceitfulness of sin and how it draws you in. Because you're trying to satisfy something inside of you that those things were not meant to satisfy. Marriage doesn't give identity. Sex doesn't satisfy dissatisfaction with life. You're going to do it and still be depressed. You're going to do it and still feel worthless. After it's all said and done, because it's not designed to give you life. It's not designed to give you purpose. It's not designed to make you who you are. God is. And what we fail to see and what we fail to realize is that's the power of sin trying to deceive you, trying to suck you in. And do not be taken captive by the pleasure of it. Sin is a principle. It has power and it has pleasure. And lastly, what well, thing everybody know that we're going to get a little deeper into later. Sin, with its power, with its pleasure, there's a penalty to it. There's consequences. It stings and it bites at the end. Even though you feel overwhelmed and you cannot overcome it, you need to understand that there's a penalty to it. We, see, we hinted on it last week. We saw what happened to Adam and Eve after they made their transgression, after they committed the, the rebellion is against God. They begin to hide themselves away from God. They begin to run away from him. And then notice there's a distinction. And I love the question that God asked. Adam, where art thou? It's a fun study if you ever get a chance. Just pay attention to the questions that God asked throughout the Bible. He asked some deep questions that'll make you think about some stuff. Now on the surface, you'd be like, hold up. God, you know everything. You see everything. Why in the world are you asking Adam where he at? What, is, what, what information are you trying to find out? It's because the answering of that question for Adam will bring revelation to him. Because the presence of God in a sinful state creates a scattering. It creates a running because there's a chasm that happens. Sin separates us from God. That's the consequences of it. Isaiah talks about that God's hand is not shortened, that he cannot save, neither his ears hardened, that he cannot hear, but your sins have separated between me and you. That's the consequences of sin. Psalm chapter 5 talking about the fact that God is angry with the wicked. Same thing in 7. It says God is angry with the wicked every day. So he takes no pleasure in unrighteousness. We were created to bring delight to him. We were created to be with him, but sin creates a chasm that brings the wrath of God. There's consequences. There's a penalty to sin. There's power to it. We can't overcome it in and of our own self. It, it controls us. There's pleasure to it. We delight in it. That's how it sucks us in. But there's a penalty to it that creates a chasm between us and God. And, I, and it'd be amazing to me when you have sinful people People who live in rebellion against God, who disrespect him all night, all day long, then they want to get down at night and they want to pray. And they ask this crazy question. I pray all the time, but don't seem like God hearing my prayer. Man, hold up. You get to do whatever you want to all of your life. Live your own way. Now all of a sudden, just because you're in a crisis, God's supposed to respond and do whatever you say when you wouldn't do nothing he said. That's the way people think about God. And people don't believe in God no more because I said a prayer and he didn't answer me. I know you don't believe. You never did. Because you rebelled against him and you ignored him. 
You don't listen to any of his callings. You don't listen to any of his pleading. Now you get mad because he ain't listening to you. He ain't listening to you because there's a separation. There's a divisiveness that's going to come. God is angry with the wicked every day. And there's an indignation that exists in the heart of God when it comes to sin. And we have lost that. Those verses we don't see too much. Because people have told us about this great overcoming love of God. And people that always tell us about the compassion of God. And people always tell us about how just nice God is. But God is a righteous judge who has indignation towards wickedness. The wrath of God is revealed against unrighteousness. That's the Bible. Proverbs tell us over a couple of times about the things that God hates. Says six things that the Lord don't hate. Yea, even seven are an abomination unto him. This is God. Sin brings the displeasure of God. Sin brings the wrath of God. It's not something to be played with. It's not just a simple mistake that we do sometimes. And, and, and it's okay because we got our struggles and everybody got their struggles. Yes, everybody got their struggle. But your struggle going to lead you to death. Are you understanding what I'm saying? Every time we freely sin, every time we get caught up in the trap of iniquity, understand that you're playing Russian roulette with your life. You're just spinning the barrel and shooting. And you're putting your soul in danger of death and destruction from God because God hates it. God ain't just this passive person that's up there. You oh, I'm so sorry because they said it. But it's all right, though. All they got to do is just uh, go and repeat after that preaching. Everything going to be okay. If they just say that, that magical prayer, I'm just waiting to hear the magical word. No, that's a lie. The Bible talks about God having the wicked on a slippery place. The Bible talks about, it paints the picture of them being suspended over the fire and over the depths of hell. This is the position that sin puts us in. And, oh man, it just, it, it angers me and it disturbs me that we have so many that has deluded our mind to the great gravity that we put ourselves in when we sin. Is God merciful? Yes. He is. But is sin serious? Yes, it brings the anger of God. And I'm going to go do it for time. But I can take you just from chapter to chapter to chapter all throughout the Bible that shows you how God feels about sin. There's whole nations, as we would say, ethnicities of people, because we woke, who does not exist anymore because they lived a way that was displeasing to God. You ain't been walking around and heard too many people like, man, man, you know what I'm saying? I came over here. I migrated from 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 the um the Hittite nation. You know what I'm saying? All my descendants are Hittites. You don't hear that. How many Moabites have you met? You don't know none of them. They from the seed of Abraham because they do Abraham's marriage with Keturah. So they supposed to be blessed because they Abraham children. But they don't exist no more. And God had a plan to wipe them out. You got whole archaeologists spending their lives trying to find a place called Sodom and Gomorrah. God done wiped it off the face of the planet. We don't even know where it at no more. Because this is how we feel about sin. It's a place called Tyre. It's one of the most amazing prophecies in the book of Isaiah. 
where God talks about he's going to destroy this nation. And he gets so deep with it, he said the whole city will become a scraped off rock in a place where fishers hang their nets. This was his description of the city. Like this is what's going to happen to the city because of the rebellion of Tyre. Said the whole city going to be a scraped off rock in a place where fishermen hang their nets. And this place still exists today. It ain't no city. It's just a blanket shore. Because when Alexander the Great began to take over, he destroyed it and burned the whole thing down. And not only did he burn the whole thing down, they cast the stones into the sea. So you got this built up moat around what used to be the shore of the city from the very stones of the city being cast into the sea. Now it's just a destination spot for fishermen. They rest when they're on their journey. Just like God said. Why did he do that? Why did he destroy the whole existence of a place from off the planet? Because they were sinners. And that's the way he feels about sin. God took his own precious people, the people who he gave his law to, the people who he sacrificed himself for, and he destroyed them. He sent nation after nation after nation to run down these people we called Israel. He sent the Assyrians to carry them off. He sent the Babylonians to grab them. He said they were taking their babies by the feet and smashing them against the ground. This is the wicked people that God used to punish them. This is a wicked nation. To the point where Obadiah couldn't understand it once he saw the vision. It's like, you too good to look at this evil. How is it that you're going to judge us with this wicked nation? And God didn't say, well, you know, you're right. I shouldn't do that. Because y'all are better than them. Because they do this sin and y'all do that sin. And y'all are my people, so it's okay. No. He still brought his judgment and he caused Obadiah to see that sin is something that God hates. He does not requit it in anybody to the point where he was willing to destroy his very name from out the land. The temple of God was destroyed, carried down, all the instruments carried away in a celebration. This is the place that God said, I put my name there. But it became a house of iniquity, a den of thieves. So he was willing to destroy the place that he put his name because he hates sin. That's the penalty of it. So as that power overtakes you, know that the power is making you an enemy of God. Something that God does not take pleasure in. This is gospel truth. That's why repentance is such a big deal. That's why when John the Baptist stepped on the scene, he, he didn't come on the scene and saying, hey, everybody, the love of God is finna come and it's finna be shared abroad in our hearts. Love, 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 love. Y'all show up and see this great love. That ain't, that ain't the message that he preached. He went repent because the kingdom of God is, hand, is at hand. He got his winnowing fan in his hand and he about to bring judgment. He was preaching that Jesus was coming. But he was still preaching repentance and y'all need to get right and you need to get ready because God ain't playing. To the point where the Pharisees came to see John and he said, hold up. Who warned y'all to run and flee from the destruction that is to come? This is how John understood the relationship between the children of Israel and God because being brought under the power of sin and being captured by the pleasure of sin puts you in the place of being displeasing to God because God hates it. You understand it? That's sin. It is something that God truly loathes. It's something that he despises, and we need to do with everything in us to run away from it. But the hope is 
If the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. And Christ will make you free. And then the freedom that Christ gives us is freedom from the power of sin. It's freedom from the pleasure of sin. And it's freedom from the penalty of sin. Completely, he makes you truly free. Because if you're caught under any one of them, you're not free. Because all of those are aspects of sin. Are you understanding what I'm saying? So in our freedom, let's delight in the total freedom of God. Not just in the fact that one day I won't go to hell. That's cool. But that's like delight in the fact that sin no more has control over me. Because the son has set me free. Let's delight in the fact that he has the power to purify me of the pleasures and the delight that I once took in it. He can take them away from me and teach me how to delight in his truth. Teach me how to delight in the world the way that he designed it to be. Because true pleasure is only pleasure when it is done in the way that God designed it to be. Are y'all understanding what I'm saying? Anybody got any questions? Everyone falling short. Um, so is there a point at which and what would that look like of not falling short? Yes. Because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So the point of not falling short is twofold. It's the initial unfalling short is where God comes in and he un begin to undo the corruption that's inside of us. He said in Ezekiel, he's going to give you a brand new heart, a brand new spirit, and he's going to put his spirit inside of you. So that, that the frailties and the weaknesses that causes you to miss the mark, that causes you to not be what God created you to be, he said he's going to recreate those. Because it says the heart that's inside of us that causes us to commit lying, murder, adultery, fornication. But he's going to give you a brand new heart. So that's the beginning of him coming inside of you and transforming you. But then there's some weaknesses and there's some frailties that we have through through upbringing, through temperament, through all the various things that make us us. Like I said, some people are passive, so they can't step up and just be bold for Christ because they just, they just, just by nature pass. Some people are just overly aggressive and they just can't control their tongue because they feel it's just overwhelming. They got to say everything about everything. And God made them that way. And that's just a weakness of their, their character, a weakness of their nature. But the promise we have through the gospel is that that in our weakness, Christ is made strong. So although you may still see weaknesses and frailties within yourself, those weaknesses and frailties will not make you miss the mark because God has promised to to overshadow them, to, to pour out grace that's sufficient enough to, to bring up your shortcomings, if you understand what I'm saying. So there's an undoing of the corruption that goes that takes place. That's being born again and regenerated. But there's the upholding and, and the helping and the power of grace that causes you to not fall prey to your weaknesses, if you understand what I'm saying. And that's why it's key in that. Because a lot of us, when we see Paul say that God is made perfect in my weakness or in my infirmities, we take infirmities to be sin. But no, it's not. All it means is an ailment, a weakness, something that is not exactly the way it should be. And his promise is that in those areas, so if you're too timid, if you're over-aggressive, if you're just dense-minded and <laughs> you just tend to forget everything, God has the ability that in those weak areas, that he can overshadow you with his grace. So it's that twofold supporting that we get through the grace of God, that, that undoing of the corruption and him holding you up. Now, sometimes he leads the Canaanites in the land as he did in there. It's to show you that you still need him and you ain't got the power to do it on your own. 
And then that's that final day with his dirt bag going to be done away with. And now we ain't got to deal with the death and decay and the fatigue and all the other stuff that creates all type of other craziness in our lives because our body is going to be perfect then. But here on this planet is with God upholding us and him undoing the corruption in us. That makes a little sense. See, Go ahead. So outside of the thing sin, are you, would you say then that mankind would have always had a weakness even without sin being present? Uh, I can't truly say that. Okay. Because just in the biblical picture, we don't see it because man was all good. So the picture we get of him of it being a, a whole man, a, a good man, in that this evil or this corruption, this this chasm was created when he partook of the tree and he became good and evil. He became to partook of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So he understood both sides at that point, so to speak. So <clears throat> the corruption, as far as we can tell through scripture, came through the disobedience. So there's nothing to say that man would have had infirmities or weaknesses. Even in this small things like just deformities in our bodies, our deformities in, in the chemicals within us. I think all of that is a part of the corruption of the nature that took place through sin. I don't think we would have had any of that stuff pre-sin. Any other questions? What does inconstant mean? Huh? What does inconstant mean? Inconstant? Inconsistent. inconsistent. Okay. All right. Inconsistent. Consistent to means you're doing the same thing the same way over and over again. The end makes it not. So it's not doing the same thing the same way over and over again. So if I'm tapping like this and I keep doing it, I'm being consistent. But if I start like this, then I slow down and I do this sometimes. It's, it's inconsistent. It's not the same over and over again. What does recalibrate mean? Recalibrate? That's a very good question. To calibrate means to set something in, in the right way. So like if you have a scale that leans, so when you calibrate it, you get it to where it lined up at zero at the right point. So you get it straight. That's what it means to recalibrate. So you're getting it back in the right way. What does righteous mean? Righteous is that which is doing good or that which is supposed to be done. Justice and treating people right and being kind and obeying God and your parents, all that stuff is being righteous. Any other questions? I have one more. Go ahead. So um, I know we talked about the verse before where um, basically they were asking who caused this man to be ill. Like, was it sin or mm -hmm. was it not sin? And Jesus replied that no one sinned. It was so that his glory you know, would be, be shown sure. through his, you know. So I, going back to the previous um, question, I guess one of the things, I, and, and, I, and I care because of perspective. Mm -hmm. Like, is it the perspective that we um, will never struggle, even if sin, you know, because we always hear like it's the product of the fall, or, you know. So do we just give in and believe, okay, struggling is a constant narrative simply because of sin or are there some things where you're just going to 
deal with. Not saying you won't overcome, but so that God can get glory. Does that make sense? I, I think I get what you're saying. It depends on what you mean by that. Because even the concept of a struggle in our world that, that has a couple of different connotations. And the most consistent connotation is that it's something that overtakes us and we have to go end up in this cycle, deal with it, it overtakes us. I realize that oh, I messed up. And that's the picture of struggle. But a biblical picture would be that there's things that we strive against. Because the Bible <clears throat> paints the picture of the Christian life. It gives two different pictures. One is rest and ease. And another one is a war and a fight. <clears throat> Both of them are true. So there will always be a fight and a struggle in the sense that we're wrestling and we're fighting against principalities and powers. We're wrestling and we're fighting against the evils and the violence of this world. So that wrestle, if you mean by struggling, is I'm always going against something. I'm always fighting against something. That's something always contrary to me. Yeah, that's true. <clears throat> but if you mean that I'm always getting tripped up. I always got this weakness that, that catches me off guard and it sucker punch me. That's not true because we have help and we have access to the one who calls us to always be a victorious, to always overcome. So, yes, there will always be struggles. Like as Christians, we're fighting a war and, and we got principalities and powers. Just even being in this city puts us in a war if we're conscious of it. Just because there's powers that rest and rule over the city. There's, there's strongholds. Being in a family, you're always going to be struggling. Because you're trying to train your kids and, you, and you're trying to keep them on the right track. You're trying to be aware of the, of the tenderness of their hearts and the way that the enemy may be trying to pervert them or, or, or capture them. And, you, and all, all that is a war. All that is a struggle. To be balancing that and striving to be a good husband. I mean, to be a good wife, to be a good mother, while still being successful at other things you believe that God put you in. Oh, yes, that's a struggle. But does it mean that those struggles will put you into a place where you're going to fall and, and one of them ain't going to be where it's supposed to be? No, because God promised to be with you through it all. He promised to give you his wisdom. He promised to, to guide you and lead you. He promised to not let you be tempted above what you're able. So if that's what you mean by struggle, then... Yeah, there will be things coming after you. Like some people struggle with fatigue just because of the way their body made. Their thyroid don't work the way it's supposed to because we live in America. And as my wife said, we eat this sad diet, this standard American diet, and they mess up our whole body and hormones and all that stuff. But does that mean you're just going to be angry because you're tired all the time and the husband's going to come home and throw his stuff on the day and going to have disregard for his wife and ain't going to care about what she's talking about and ain't going to want to know how her day was? No, it doesn't mean that. It just means it's going to be a little harder for him. He might have to say, hold on, babe, I missed what you said. Could you say it again? <laughs> yeah, just That's a struggle for him to stay conscious and to stay focused because of the frailness of his body. But there's that excuse to say, I disregard what you say. You don't need to come to me. When I come through that door, don't you tell me about your day. No, that's that's foolish. He might have said, hold up, babe, I, I, I missed it. Could, <laughs> could you please tell me again? Oh, let me drink some tea. Uh, <laughs> I'm saying, let me relax myself. Then tell me. But it depends on what you mean by struggle, if you get what I'm Yeah. Yeah, I think, and I think that possibly is true. Because work and labor is a part of it. Because work and labor was a part of the original creation. But when he cursed him, he says, it's tore through the sweat of your brow. So it seems like there's some strenuousness that took forth 
just to get the bare minimums of what was originally came. I'm pretty sure in the early days, it just would have been all up to the ingenuity of Adam. That he could have just been thought and just created different ways and mixed different chemicals together and different soils and just make all type of plants that we've never seen before. But now you got to be like George Washington Cobb and, and pray and <laughs> just figure out what to do with the one little peanut. But if that's what you mean by struggle, the fact that life is still going to have its roughness and it's still going to have its challenges, yes, because we're not received the full redemption. But the final redemption we're waiting on is the redemption of the world. Paul in Romans 8 talking about the whole creation groaning and waiting on that day of redemption to what this whole thing is get back straight. That makes a little ask. Any other? What is the purpose of the transfiguration on the mountain? The transfiguration on the mountain? The full purpose of it? I really don't know because Jesus don't tell us his purpose of it. But what it did was to show those three disciples a glimpse of who he was and it allowed them to see him in his splendor. So he showed off and showed them that he's truly God manifest in flesh and that all glory and power and honor is unto him. So that was a display of his glories so that when they come talking to us about who Jesus was, they can say stuff like Peter said, that I ain't telling you what I heard or telling you favors. I'm telling you what I've seen with my own eyes, telling you what I witnessed. Any other questions? Look like they're all yours, Pastor.